0: Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller, and I am the founder of Miller Law Group and a trainer at the Center for Understanding and Conflict, and I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity, and I am thrilled today that my guest is Debbie Mirza. She's an international best-selling author, speaker, restorative coach, and surprisingly, singer-songwriter. She's the author of The Covert Passive-Aggressive Narcissist, Recognizing the Traits and Finding healing after hidden emotional and psychological abuse, as well as Worthy of Love, A Gentle and Restorative Path to Healing After Narcissistic Abuse, and The Safest Place Possible, A Guide to Healing and Transformation. In addition to her books, Debbie has created online courses, guided meditations, and an informal YouTube channel to help people understand what covert narcissistic abuse looks like and be able to heal, take their power back, and see the truth of their own magnificence. Debbie's book, music, and helpful resources can be found on her website, DebbieMirza.com. That's D-E-B-B-I-E-M-I-R-Z-A.com. Welcome, Debbie Mirza. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate you inviting me, and it's an honor to be here. You know, so many people these
0: days are talking about narcissism and, you know, I mean, sometimes I think what they're talking about is maybe just self-absorption, which many people getting divorced are, but that's different than a real, dealing with a real narcissist. So can you talk a little bit about what narcissism is and particularly the difference between overt narcissism and covert narcissism?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, usually when you're throwing around the word narcissism, it is what you said people who are self-absorbed all into themselves selfish things like that but narcissistic personality disorder is a whole different thing and in the dsm-5 which is like the guidebook for therapists as far as how to diagnose people what are the criteria for different disorders there are nine disorders and you have to have at least five of these to be diagnosed as having narcissistic personality disorder. And the difference between covert and overt, the traits are exactly the same, but overt is, is the type of narcissist, when, when you have a picture in your mind, when you think of narcissists, usually they're people that are obnoxious, they're obviously self-absorbed, they're obviously out for themselves, sometimes they're flashy, they're loud, they're charismatic. But the covert narcissist is a different animal in the sense that the same traits, but these are generally people who are well-liked, well-respected. They're much, their way of controlling and manipulating is much more subtle and much more difficult to recognize. So you can be married to a covert narcissist for decades, for a very long time, and have no idea. You know, until you start to wake up and notice you've had all these years of being belittled and demeaned and controlled and devalued and manipulated and gaslighted, you know, all the things that come with narcissistic personality disorder.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, I think that for my clients who are married to covert narcissists, they somehow Mm -hmm. feel like that there's something that, that they're being I don't know, pulled along on a string, right? And so that their spouse is nice to them when, you know, sometimes and other times really, really not nice to them. And it seems to me that isn't, isn't the lack of empathy a characteristic of, of narcissism in terms of the not just the self-centered, but the actually diagnosable kinds that, that it's as if the person just may be able to fake it, but isn't really
1: empathetic to their spouse. Am, am I mistaken about that, Debbie? No, you're totally correct. Yeah, that's one of the traits, a lack of empathy. And the way that can come about, you know, appear in a covert narcissist, it's, it's tricky like everything else because like you said, they can act like they have empathy. They're oftentimes, you know, one covert narcissist that I was with a friend of mine once said, it feels like he's scripted, you know, like everything out of his mouth is, is like an actor reading a script. And so they're very charming with divorce attorneys. They're very charming with in court, in mediation with a mediator. They're just naturally, they kind of, they're almost like a more intelligent version (laughs) of, The overt narcissist, they're more crafty and their reputation is everything to them. That's another difference between covert and overt. An overt narcissist generally doesn't care what you think of them. They're gonna do what they're gonna do. They're gonna railroad right over you if they need to. The covert narcissist does railroad right over you. They do go for what they want. You don't matter. They have no empathy, like you said, when it comes to you. But the difference is they're not obnoxious. Like most people don't see through it because it's done so subtly. Right, which is why it's such a surprise
0: for the spouse to wake up and realize that there never really was any empathy because it seems like there is, but it's right. not really, it's, it seems like they have this warm or close relationship that we're both give and take in terms of compassion and empathy on both sides, but it's not really authentic on the part of the narcissist, at least as I understand it. And and I just want to make sure that I'm not misunderstanding it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so that's so painful, though, because then when you realize that the other person really doesn't have empathy for you as their spouse, and obviously in the work that I do with people who are getting divorced, I mean, this is a very painful realization. It's also something that the spouse yearns for. I want to go back to that time when it felt like that my spouse had empathy for me. And what advice do you have for someone in that position?
1: it rocks your world in an incredibly painful way. And that's where, you know, there's different stages of relationships with a covert narcissist. And the first one is called love bombing. And that's where you, their character is established in your mind. So the person you begin to see is their best version, you know, as they're acting and they're emulating you and kind of becoming you. So for the rest of the relationship you see them through these eyes. So if they do anything that isn't kind or, you know, doesn't feel good, you tend to give them the benefit of the doubt and go, well, they're just under a lot of stress. Well, they just went through this. And so there's so much cognitive dissonance when you're going through a divorce and that's when you see like their mess flips you know, a lot during the discard phase, which is the third phase of the narcissist. And it's incredibly confusing because you have this cognitive dissonance of this person you thought they were and then they're acting this certain way and it doesn't match and you're still in that same programming of excusing their behavior and you still see them as someone who you think loves you and cares about you when they actually don't. And it is a huge deal, a huge awakening and realization, like you're saying, when they start looking back and realizing, actually, there was no empathy and the whole time. And one advice, there's so much I could give, but one advice I would say for someone going through a divorce with a covert narcissist is to really... Pay attention to their words versus their actions because you'll see they don't match. You know, they might say, I really do care about you. I'll be really kind to you. This will be, you know, we'll, we'll be fine. We'll respect each other. And you're like, oh, okay, good. But then their actions show the opposite. Or a lot of times they'll, in divorce, they'll actually, a lot of covert narcissists will play on your feelings and your emotions. And usually there is, you know, in my book there's a chapter called the the traits of the covert narcissist, but there's another chapter called the traits of the target. And so there is a type of person that ends up getting with the covert narcissist. And one thing that's pretty consistent is they're usually trusting people, they're caring people, and so the covert narcissist can use that caring heart and do use that caring heart against them. I'll give you an example. You know, a woman's going through a divorce. And I should say, it seems about half and half to me, like men and women. You know, this is not an overly men situation or overly women situation. But in this illustration, I'll use the covert narcissist being a man and the other person being a woman. So they're about to go to mediation. Here's just an example. And he sends her an email before the night before and says, I'm really nervous about tomorrow, and would you please think about me and think about my health? And and I don't like the idea of supporting you for so long, and it's really stressing me out. and So she's totally affected by this because she still cares about him, and she'll mm-hmm. just she still sees him as someone who loves her. And then she's like, "Wait, is he having health problems? <laughs> you know, that's never been healthy." <laughs> and her, she's thrown, and so she gets to the. you know, mediation in this story. And she shows her attorney the email. And the attorney's like, oh, whatever. And she's like, what do you mean, whatever. And the attorney says, okay, this is so manipulative. And she's like, I don't see how. Can you please show me? But then she walks her through this pattern where every single paragraph is the same. First, it starts with something that builds her up. Second, it starts with something that puts her down. The third part ends with a poor me statement. The second paragraph, the exact same formula. Third paragraph, exact same formula. So they have a way of maybe starting nice and then putting you down in a subtle way and then poor me, please think about me. And it messes with your head because you do care about this person. They don't care about you. But you actually do care about them. That's the big difference. And you're a wreck and they're not. (laughs) They might act like it, but they're fine. Like they're, they're done with you. They're moving on. When a covert narcissist divorces you, they cut you off like nobody's business and it's so painful. And they really like kick you to the curb and there's no feelings there. There's no remorse. There's no feeling bad. There's no caring about your feelings. So it's a very muddled mess so as far as advice too, you know, realize this cognitive dissonance, look at the actions versus the word, you know, and also get help with friends or your attorney or a therapist or someone where you can show things like that email too, where you can help, you know, have an outside perspective, help you see clearly like, okay, this is what's happening. I want to remind people that they're
0: listening to Divorce Dialogues, and I'm Catherine Miller. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, and we're also available at the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm talking today with Debbie Merz about divorcing a narcissist. And, you know, I really wanted to just pick up where you were there, Debbie, and say, it's sort of like that people feel that their spouse has changed, and and I think that they haven't changed. They're just not interested in trying to work the relationship anymore. And they, so, I mean, do you think that's different? Does the narcissist go from being a caring, loving person to just kicking you to the curb? Or is it just a different piece of the same puzzle?
1: Yeah, completely. They don't change. It's exactly how you explained it, where they have this mask on and the mask over the discard phase or the divorce you know phase flips a lot more because they're not for as long as you are with them you were their energy supply because where are they a covert narcissist when you're around someone if you think of someone who you think might be a a covert narcissist look at them and ask yourself like who is this person like they tend to be kind of bizarrely like an empty vessel you know and so that's where they ask so much and, and they don't access energy from the, themselves so they use other people to access their energy they're energy vampires it's another way of putting it and so they've been doing that the whole time they're with you so they've been working you in ways you haven't seen it so it's still the same person still the same issue but when you go to the discard phase now they're done and they move on fast that's a very typical thing for them to do they always have to be with someone Because they need an energy supply. And sometimes their kids are their energy supply. And so toward the end, they cut you off. They're cutting off their energy supply and moving on to another one. So nothing has changed with them. They just have just transferred who their new energy supply is. So Debbie, you've
0: talked about the discard phase. Can you just, for the listeners, talk about what the phases are when you're dealing with a covert narcissist?
1: Sure, yeah. The first one starts out with a love-bombing phase and that's where they woo you, they kind of become you. That's an interesting thing too. They're kind of chameleons where like after they leave you, they'll end up with someone else and you're like, who is this? Like now they're completely a different person they've become their new supply so the love bombing stage sets you up for the rest of the relationship and that's where they're kind and they're caring and they listen to you and they they kind of become everything that you want you know in a lover and a partner and they'll work on your insecurities and your weaknesses and kind of you know become what you're longing for then the second phase is the devaluing phase, the meaning and devaluing. And so that's where it starts very subtly and very slowly where, you know, they might promise to get to meet you at your doctor's appointment and they don't show up, but there's an excuse that makes sense. Or they meet for dinner and they're 20 minutes late or 30 minutes late and there's an excuse, an apology, I'm like, okay, kind of like just the beginning of subtle, not respecting your time, not respecting you, not keeping their promises, not keeping their word. And then just very little, you know, the gaslighting starts in and you just, over time with people like this, you basically, your light inside you dims, your energy, goes out, you have end up with health problems because you're in this situation where you're slowly and subtly being demeaned and devalued without realizing it, and so your self-esteem just plummets over time, and you don't see it because it's like that slow dripping water. Final phase is the discard, and that is excruciatingly painful, it's confusing. It does feel, like you said before, it feels like this new person that you've never seen before. So it's super confusing. And you end up, you're so used to taking the blame for everything. So then that just transfers over that time. And they're very happy to paint the picture where this is all because of you, that this didn't work. And the divorce is terrible because of you. And they are really into punishing you. So the... A discard phase is full of rage and punishment. And they will, if you have kids, they'll use your kids to punish you. Money is a big thing. Anything, power, money, control, you know, even if they will go after you for all the money you have, or if you don't have money and you need, you know, their support, they will try to give you the least, least amount possible And they will make it so painful. It's, it's brutal. This card phase is brutal. And it's not, it's not a, not that there's a normal divorce, but kind of, (laughs) it's not your normal divorce. And it, and a lot of times people will give you advice when you're going through this divorce that worked for that, their divorce. But it's, the rules are different, you know, and, and that's, and you don't know that going in and you don't expect the rage and the brutality and then it doesn't end with the divorce because they will keep punishing you after it they will keep trying to control you they'll keep using your kids and try and turn them against you and parental alienation and things like that so yeah those are the the three stages
0: All right. Well, I have a lot of questions, but before I ask them, I want to remind people that I'm Catherine Miller and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX, 1460 AM, every other Wednesday from 5 to 530. We're also available as a podcast. And I'm talking with Debbie Mirza about divorcing a narcissist. And Debbie, if people are interested in learning more about you or your book, how can they do that?
1: Yeah. The best place is my website, which is my name.com. So debbiemirza.com. C E D D I E M I R Z A dot com. That's where you'll find links to all my books and online courses and everything available. That's really the best way to find the one stop shop for everything. So yes,
0: since we're talking about divorcing a narcissist and what what are some things that people should look for in an attorney who can help them divorce a narcissist, and what are the rules that are going to work with? a covert narcissist as opposed to, you know, everybody else.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I love that you're, that you understand this because, and I think more and more attorneys are, but that that's the biggest thing is to find an attorney that understands narcissism. And so when you're interviewing a divorce attorney, I would ask them, do you understand narcissism? Do you understand covert narcissism? And if you if they say yes, then please tell me how you deal with a covert narcissist. You know, tell me what you know about it. Tell me what your experience is. Because you really want to, you need someone that understands them. I would also say they have a great effect on you. So like, for instance, if you have a mediation situation, and from what I understand, different states are different, how they work this. But it's possible, if there's a way to not, see the narcissist that will help you think more clearly during the process because they have they're so triggering just their presence just seeing them will throw you and you won't be able to think straight so I know some places that's not possible another thing that I've learned and again ask your attorney if this works in your state but if at all possible have it put in the agreement. That and this is like I'm not an attorney, <laughs> so this is just like from talking to people what has helped them. So I'm not giving advice. I should say like legal advice, but just from other talking to other people. It's very important that the, the children have a voice. So because these are can be very abusive situations, and so you have to do what you can to protect your children. And this is where I would talk to your attorney about ways to do that. But one one thing, depending on your state, and you can speak to this um, as well, um, your experience with this, it's really good to have the children have a choice at a certain age. If they don't feel comfortable, you know, living with their mom or living with their dad or visiting, I feel very strongly that they need to have that choice. And so with a lot of states, once they reach a certain age, they can. So I feel like that's a really important thing to have in the mediation agreement. Have you, you know, come across that or dealt with that in your practice? Yeah, well, certainly in litigation, it's very
0: common for the children to have their own attorney. And sometimes in mediation or in the collaborative process, we work with a child specialist who's a mental health professional who's chosen for his or her Training and experience dealing with family similar issues that the family is facing, and that person comes in as a strong voice for the children. The children have an opportunity to speak with that person outside of the presence, obviously, of their parents, so that they can yeah, really, they can really have that opportunity to express their their worries, their concerns. And I think a lot of people think, oh, this person is going to say, well, who do you want to live with, mommy or daddy? I mean, it's not like that. It's a lot more nuanced yeah. than that. But there really are some ways in which really beautifully done, I've seen mental health Mm. professionals bring the children's voice into the mediation or negotiation.
1: Oh, beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, so advice for dealing with in the divorce process, just know this is going to be brutal. And so how can you take care of yourself in this process? It's time to up the self-care and to do take care of yourself as best you can get into nature, take walks, if you can, you know, see a coach or a therapist or somebody, a support group or something that can help walk you through this, it's huge to take care of yourself during this process. Yeah, I think that's really
0: good advice. And, uh, you know, just a quick, any quick tips to someone who's thinking about divorcing a narcissist that think they should do right off the bat in our last few seconds.
1: Yeah, I would definitely meet with with a few different um, attorneys and ask them lots of questions and see who you feel comfortable with and who really understands your situation. Because it helps to get kind of before you start the process to get as much information as you possibly can beforehand.
0: All right. That is terrific information. Debbie Merzat, this has gone so quickly and I'm really very happy and flattered that you agreed to be our guest today. Thank you so much.